Good morning. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Data Democratization Podcast. Jeffrey Dobin here, along with my tag team partner, Alexandra Ebert, Chief Trust Officer at Mostly AI. And today, we're joined by a true frontline warrior in data privacy, Sang Shin. So, Alexandra, what, what should people expect? Definitely a lot. Sang is a seasoned startup veteran with some interesting stories and a ton of insight. He's currently working in Singapore, helping startups reach their full potential as Director of Digital Innovation at Tamasek, an investment management company. Today, he talks about the data protection app he invented that was used by millions of people, but eventually was taken down by Apple. He also talks about the current privacy landscape in Europe, in the United States, as well as in Singapore and Southeast Asia. Plus, he shares his predictions for the tech sector for 2021 and beyond with us. And there's a whole bunch of other insights he shares during today's episode. So listen in and enjoy. All right, three, two, one, let's go. Hi, Sang. Where does this podcast find you? And can you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello. So my name is Sang. I'm, uh, you found me uh, in this interesting space and time of my life. <laughs> Currently, I'm in Singapore, but uh, I'm a Korean who was born and raised in the Philippines and moved to the United States to study in college. And after that, I stayed in the States for a couple of decades where I worked in uh, investment management technologies, um, mm -hmm. building different systems. Um, but towards the last stint of my stay, I ventured into um, startup world, moved over to uh, California and did a bunch of startups. And once that ended, I moved over here to Southeast Asia to see you know, how I could take what I learned over the past few years and decades and help grow the startup ecosystem in this neck of the woods. Perfect. So sounds like you got your fair share of traveling before we hit this pandemic and are not allowed to travel anymore. So wise choice to do back then. You can never travel enough. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely agree with that. Well, one thing I would love to talk about, you actually invented a data protection app that was not only downloaded, but also used by millions of people. But then Apple pulled it from the app store. Can you share this story with us? Sure. Yeah. So that was a that was a, a, a very interesting part of my life. Um, I was uh, towards the tail end of my career in corporate America. I was working in um, some hedge fund at that point in time, and um, a next colleague of mine um, and I decided to drop things and 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 tackle this problem um, where we just didn't understand back then and still today. Um, how data was just being collected and monetized um, in a very inex not explicit or not clear way with mm -hmm. consumers. And there was a lot of money to be made doing that. And we just thought it didn't make sense the way it was, the way we had arrived there. And the path to that point was an interesting one. It started, you know, with the internet and the web and with cookies and browsers and Netscape and it just continued to evolve into the mobile world when phones started coming up and different types of tracking in the mobile uh, uh, setup. And we decided to try and change it and mm -hmm. take a stab at it. 
And so we, we built an app that essentially, uh, if you installed the app by default, it would block all trackers um, from taking data from you and your history and your activities. And also would block the ability for advertisers to send you advertising uh, based on your data and effectively put you off grid uh, from that whole digital advertising market data collection space. And uh, our app really only had one major utility or function. It was a simple switch um, on or off state. Default state is your off grid. But should you choose to, you can flip the switch and join our ad network or our data sharing and monetization network. And the difference with our network is we explicitly are clear on what data we're collecting mm -hmm. and actually pay you for your data um, and for the right for advertisers to show you advertising based on the data you shared with them. And so this was a very different take on the way things were. Um, it was a very explicit agreement. Mm -hmm. And you as a user would effectively take control over the value of your data. You could sell it over and over to different advertisers and make money out of it. And so that essentially was the app that we built called Bin Choice. Absolutely impressive. Yes. And I think it's not only about taking control, but also get uh, money for the data you sell. Um, so it's definitely beneficial for the users. What would you say was the, were the benefits for the companies that were purchasing this type of data where users gave explicit consent? Well, yeah, I mean, the, from the business side, there is a lot of um, a lot of issues in terms of options, meaning that unless you're in the walled gardens of, let's say, um, Facebook or Google, or at that time emerging was Amazon, you really had no choice. Mm -hmm. um, where else would the data come from? You would be limited. You would have to rely on other alternative data sources, which would be at that time was a hodgepodge of, you know, data collectors and sellers. And they would try to through uh, some complex mechanisms and sometimes very surreptitious ways Mm -hmm. try to put and stitch micro data together to build a picture of who you are, which really wasn't that accurate. Yeah. And so you sometimes see ads that you really didn't care about <laughs> popping up on your phone. And that was a challenge for businesses because their investment into advertising and marketing wasn't really paying the dividends unless you would then go to Facebook's advertising platform or one of the walled gardens where they control all the data and control also the marketing and advertising platform itself. But you were very limited. The, the ad would only then appear on when they used Facebook, for example. Yeah. And so as a, as a business, um, you were, you were kind of left with not really great options as a result of that. The, the value add to them would be to be accessing very high quality first party data, meaning data that the user themselves or him or herself has specifically said, I do want to share this data with you, you company specifically, because I'm actually interested in your products and services. And I do want to see if you have any deals or discounts uh, for your products and services. So for me, that would be like, you know, I like to buy, let's say Nike products, like shoes, for example. Uh, I wouldn't mind sharing my data with them uh, in order to you know, be getting a discount uh, or be able to join a lucky draw or some other kind of marketing thing that they're doing, right? And they can target me because I want to be targeted by them. Yeah. And they would be happy too because their, their spend 
uh, would yield high results, right? Because they're, they're targeting now people who actually want information uh, from them and deals from them. Yeah, this, this sounds actually like, like an invention that was truly helpful in reconciling not only privacy protection, but also a privacy-friendly way of, of data utilization. But then you mentioned when we had a conversation before the, the recording of this episode that the app actually was pulled from the app stores. Why was that? Well, I mean, there's multiple stories around why the app was pulled. Technically, the, the, the official technical story is, if you Google it, you will see that it was pulled because of some infringement in the way that it handled some sort of certificates, which, you know, without getting too technical, is just the way that in Apple and iOS for its uh, iPhones handled the way that, you know, app, apps in general can, what access they had in controlling, um, in our case, some of the data. Mm-hmm. And the, the technology we used was uh, nothing groundbreaking in terms of um, that it was a VPN ultimately, right? But it was a very special VPN. And there were a lot of uh, VPN um, software apps out there using exactly the, what we were doing, uh, mm-hmm. to be honest. And so it wasn't like something new uh, that came up and that they disallowed. It was, in essence, something that had been going on forever that for some interesting reason, they picked that point in time and us to stop. <laughs> I think you even so, mentioned that that point in time was after, think, a New York Times article or anything else. That's- it was, yeah, it was a, it was a, a, when we were published on Financial Times oh. and that, that publication that um, led to a lot of interest in what we were doing and, and triggered an avalanche of uh, media coverage of the potential and game-changing um, disruption that this business model and capability would bring about. And that, I think, precipitated um, at the high levels of the company some difficult decision-making they had to make. Because if if you remember, I don't know if most people won't remember, but I do remember because I was in the middle of it. At that time, it was around when iOS, if I recall, 9 or when iPhone, for people like iPhone 5, kind of, like iPhone 6, like that era, right? It was at that time when Apple themselves actually released for their iOS browser, Safari, on the phone, on the iPhone. So iPhone's browser, they released the capability to actually block trackers and ads for Safari. For Mm -hmm. any developer to come in and develop something and then add it on to the Safari browser. And then you could effectively also kind of go off grid, meaning it would block collection of data and block ads from being sent to you. And there was a whole lot of these small little ad blockers that came out using that capability that Apple enabled. And so when we came about, which was actually just not too far from that, it was like a month or two months, if I recall, um, it caused an issue because what we were able to do is do it not only for any browser, let alone the Safari iOS browser, but any app. Mm -hmm. In fact, your entire phone would be shielded not just the Safari browser. And so then it was a difficult discussion, right? Because they had just allowed their browser to do this, but then what are they gonna do about apps and other browsers, but particularly apps Mm -hmm. where big companies were making huge revenue out of. And so the question 
invariably boiled down to, are we going to allow this for browsers, particularly our browser, but not allow it for apps? And why would that be? Because the same company would have a website mm -hmm. and also an app. And so it's displaying the same info and collecting similar info. Uh, the app would collect more info because it can. But what would be the delineation and difference? And so that's the struggle they had, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had to make a decision. Ultimately, after some months of back and forth, they eventually made the decision that they can't allow that in apps. Uh, and the way they, in my opinion, implemented that decision. Hey, stop. Your dog right, stay on privacy, it seems. Yeah, see, my dog gets triggered when we talk about this, <laughs> this time because she knows... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, but they, they eventually they made the decision, right? And, and, and that's, that's how. And then so the way they implemented that decision was through this technicality, which I described earlier on the certificate, mm -hmm. that it existed for many, 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 many years and use that as an infringement policy to, you know, their whatever, their, their rules and banned us, took us out of the store as a result. Okay, so it can be assumed that somebody had something against millions of people having the option to uh, go off the grid and opt out. Well, yeah, I mean, you could make that assumption, right? Because it, it was, look, if we didn't have a lot of adoption, if, if it was going nowhere and nobody cared and nobody wrote about it, uh, then nobody, nothing, would, we would have continued to exist. It was only because people are writing about it, people cared and people were downloading it, yeah. um, that it raised the concern. Yeah, I can imagine. But I think people downloading it actually is the strong indicator that this is something that uh, people actually desire to have and, and wish to have. But how did this whole story and how things um, turned out to be change your views on privacy and data utilization? Yeah, I mean, you got to remember, this was back uh, quite a while ago. You know, uh, 2000. What year was it? I'm not uh, that familiar with time uh, description. I mean, we started thinking about this about six or seven years ago. So mm -hmm. back then, it, you know, unlike today, people didn't realize they were the product. They, they, you know, now it's almost common knowledge about data collection issues and monetization and, you know, but back then that wasn't the case. So when we were doing it, it was quite eye opening. I mean, I didn't know what was really going on. Um, And the, the most eye-opening thing was when we actually was when we were actually creating our app. When we were creating our product, we actually had to do research and development into what data was actually being collected, how was it being collected, and by whom, and all this stuff. And when I when I did that work, it just it just really like blew my mind. I can imagine uh, how much data was being collected that people had no idea were being collected. Yeah, even yeah. technical people. And so, I, you know, I, there was at one point I was like, wow, I realized that over half of the data that your phone uses over cellular, and back then it wasn't cheap. You know, mm -hmm. It was 3G, and there was no 4G LTE yet. Yeah, yeah. So you actually kind of watched how much data you used. And more than half, up to 60, 70% was just tracker information and ads yeah. coming out of your phone. And you, you had no idea you're paying for it. And that's why companies um, that actually targeted that, companies such as Onavo, which Facebook bought, 
they would actually uh, reduce their, their um, you know, uh, value add was they were able to reduce your data bandwidth every month by blocking all that stuff out. Mm-hmm. And so people would download and install it because they would save money every month. Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh, not, not only that you're not getting paid for the data you share, uh, if you also have to pay for it, you're probably not going to be happy. But I would argue still with the onset of GDPR and all the emerging privacy regulations, that still the majority of people is not aware of how much data actually is collected about them every day. But luckily, I think uh, we are we are moving in the right direction where there's more aware- awareness and people actually demanding that the privacy uh, is protected and respected. Uh, so when you left Silicon Valley and moved to, to Singapore, what's your perspective on the data landscape in Singapore, also in comparison to the United States and to Europe? Yeah, well, Singapore is is, is somewhat unique. Um, it, I don't think it, it, it represents necessarily the Southeast Asian region in terms of data maturity, in terms of privacy and policy. It's more advanced. Mm-hmm. So there is a national... Um, you know, policy that's been crafted and whatnot. Um, but I do think generally speaking in this region of the world, it's still a little early, meaning it's not as mature, let's say, as Europe with GDPR and even America coming closer to that. And it's a little bit like the Wild West in yeah. terms of, you know, especially if we go to some of the more developing countries out there, uh, what the data policies are and who's actually enforcing it. Um, it's, it's a little bit loose. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be loose forever. Um, so what, I, what I've what i envisioned is that in this region of the world, at least, there's a, a window of time where it, mm-hmm. it will get more strict over time, right? Um, and, and it's both an opportunity and a, a challenge. It's a challenge mm-hmm. because you have to make sure that you know, things aren't abused and we don't go the same route that we kind of went in, in other parts of the world. Um, but it's an opportunity in the sense that we have a we have a we have a we have a chance to make it so that it doesn't go there, right? So it yes. doesn't evolve in the weird way it did evolve over in America, for example, mm-hmm. and that we we help with the evolution to to bypass some of those um, rabbit holes and and kind of end up with a better setup. Because right now it's it, you know the the way the history is that it's it's so entrenched and and so concentrated into some big tech companies in the U S for example, that they now wield so much power and some of the power is uh, somewhat of a threat to even to the politics of the country. And where now there, there's all this like mixture of politics and data and and using the data to kind of show you content and, you know, uh, with the Netflix documentary that has, everybody has watched how it can affect people's version of reality. Right. So Hopefully, there's a way we can get to a point here where we avoid such concentrations of power. Yeah. How confident are you that uh, everything will move in the, as you described it, uh, positive and, and right direction without these strict regulations being in place? Do you think it's possible that if organizations, uh, if you leave this decision uh, to themselves without forcing them to some regulation, that they will opt for more privacy protection and less data collection and data utilization? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, one would think that it can't work unless there is legislation and, and, and rules and enforcement of the rules. Um, I don't necessarily think so. Mm-hmm. I think there's another component that 
will affect the way it evolves. And that is essentially profits. So if the market evolves where there actually is n not much profit to be gained anymore by doing that mm -hmm. and that we've moved on to other things, mm -hmm. then that could be a reason not to do it anymore. Right. And, and so let me give you an example of that. You know, Google recently said they're going to, they're, they're not going to collect data anymore from web browsers, mm -hmm. right. And, and, and sell you ads. They're kind of shutting that down. You got to ask, ask yourselves why they're doing that. Absolutely. Uh, if you think if you think they're doing that because they all of a sudden woke up one day and decided we're not going to do any more evil like we promised a decade ago, um, probably not. <laughs> so the reason most likely is is it's a diminishing return in terms of revenue stream. In my opinion, we've kind of finished um, about a decade's worth of doing that. Doing what and what is that? That was kind of faking you out, using human psychology to addict you or to make you tap this, tap that, so you can get that data, this data, you know, what, 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 you know, basically hacking your, your, <laughs> your human psychology, right? And then using that to get as much data as you can. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of mobile apps that develop everything from Uber to whatever location data um, in the past decade. And I think that that, that kind of is closing. That kind of way of making money and, and apps is slowly being replaced by a new interest in creating new technology and apps to actually make impact because we've got serious issues coming up. And you see a lot of investment money going into these types of um, funds that look at impact, such as sustainability with a huge influx of money coming in there, for example. Um, and so like, the investment money is now searching for certain different types of climate change is another thing that's upsetting for your dog. Climate change is a part of it, right? And so money is pouring into these things and not so much anymore like, you know, some, you know, whiz bang app that's going to like be a yeah. flash in the pan and collect your data. I think it's going to change. I think the next couple of decades is going to morph into those types of of, of investments and uh, ultimately innovations and, and new technologies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think we, we have to move in these directions to save the planet. But still, I'm a little bit surprised at what you described about Google because I always thought that the majority of the revenue is actually generated by selling uh, the possibility to advertise uh, in the search engine. So it would be a big step, I assume, for them to really uh, move past and beyond that and focus on, on more uh, other areas that, that have a bigger impact, as you described. Um, when we come back to Singapore, have you noticed uh, any notable privacy tech in innovations we should watch out for? Sure. I mean, there's there's quite a bunch. I mean, the, the most obvious one I can think of is the one that I, I've been I've been a privy to, to help out when I can. Um, you know, with the COVID situation, there's this whole, like, how are we going to re-enable travel in a secure way? And then, you know, mm -hmm. is there going to be some kind of a digital passport? How do I know you you got tested and with what test kit and by whom? Um, eventually, it's going to be how do I know did you get the vaccine, for example? Yeah. And there have been trial tests here, and the and the so for example, like you know, with the privacy, um, one of the solutions that has been pushed and been trialed that, that we're somewhat involved in is is to actually not have the data uh, 
through through using DLT and the, the chain, mm-hmm. not actually have the data go anywhere, but just have the attestation of the fact that you did it by an accredited place mm-hmm. and through wallets, confirm that. And so that's that's an interesting way where you know you, the data is preserved and it's yeah. not you're, what you're doing is the attestation and the accreditation of of what happened rather than the actual thing itself. And, and I think that's going to be something you're going to see more and more where the data isn't, what isn't transacted on. Mm-hmm. Right. Understood. Understood. Uh, do you actually see a role for synthetic data in the space of uh, enabling privacy friendly data utilization? Yeah, totally. Uh, synthetic data, I think is, as you said, is an enabler. Um, it, it lets you do certain things as a proxy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can you can generate certain types of insights. You can generate certain value out of that data without actually you know, because it's synthetic, mm-hmm. um, without actually you know using the data, which comes into the issues that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think so. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. Have you encountered any examples in the wild that you can share? Out in the wild, well, you know. I, I I don't go hunting that often. Uh, <laughs> I was more referencing the yeah, yeah, I know, thing. I know. I mean, I've we've I mean look, I've been involved in it. I've been involved in it actually. Well one time we ran we actually ran a datathon, a type of hackathon where you know it was the first time in the country of Singapore where we put together data from private and public sector, which never happened before into a a sandbox and had you know hackers basically come in and go at it and see what they could you know build out of this uh, data set and it was synthetic data. Yeah. It was the the only way we were able to get the agreement between all the entities and and, and you know you can imagine the government with your retirement and your your you know all that with like the banking info from major bank for example and 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 your travel info from major airline and all this was through that. Sounds impressive, and of course, I think that's that's a nice way to really make data accessible and also unlock some innovations. What was the outcome of this hackathon? Any great innovations, insights that happened? Basically? Yeah, it was it was actually interesting. So obviously, the hope was out of the hackathon or the datathon or which one you call it that you know this new unicorn is going to come out, and you know that's <laughs> but that's that's clearly not what happened. Um, what what ended up happening is what we found was some very interesting insights and correlations in mm-hmm. terms of human behavior and let's say their their propensity to save for retirement mm-hmm. um, or different pop- population segments and their ability to you know be healthy yeah. um, and so like these types of I mean it's not like we, you could build a company out of those insights <laughs> but there was a lot of very important insights that I think would have would have helped a lot of let's say you know, policymakers gain some, you know, ideas into what's going on and also from the private sector on how they could better help people, right? Um, yeah, yeah. People, you know. I mean, since you described this, how people save for retirement, that reminds me of one study that was once conducted where they found out that people are much more likely to save for their retirement if you actually show them a picture of themselves that is photoshopped to an older version. And I think this exact finding was taken by some startup that's now doing this with an AI service that helps you to build some kind of financial savings tool where you can regularly see and also talk to your older self and therefore increase the, the totally. likelihood to retire. I think like there was... One thing I, rem- I recall from that was there was a certain amount of traveling that people did by a certain age. And if they did, a, if they hit some threshold, like, you know, traveled a certain amount 
by a certain age, their retirement funds were, was not great. Okay, okay. Uh, what was the exact correlation? So was it just too much traveling that consumed all your retirement savings or? Kind of, yeah. Essentially that your propensity to spend was high as a result of traveling. It's certain, you know, there, there would be some leading indicators into that. Yeah. Understood, understood. Well, of course, it's a difficult choice to make travel while you're young and collecting all the well, yeah, yeah. The, these are, yeah, there's no right or wrong answers <laughs> here. Everybody decides how they want to live their life. <laughs> I think that's always the best choice. Uh, what are actually your predictions for the tech sector in 2021 and beyond? Oh, wow. I, you, you know, this part, maybe you don't want to keep in the podcast because this is how I get caned later when they say, oh, I see, Sang predicted that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> but you know predictions um we're in a very interesting point right now mm -hmm. uh, I, continuing on what i said earlier you know the, this interest in in gaming the human psychology and making money through apps that make you tap and click here and, and suck you in through yeah. addiction i think that that is last decade i think as i was saying er, more and more technologies coming in into impact, uh, whether it be through sustainability or life sciences. Mm -hmm. I do think that biotechnology and genomic areas um, is going to grow a lot. In fact, it may be where sustainability was two years ago, which was yeah. eh, really explosive yet, but people are getting to know. And then also, and since the last two years, it just exploded in terms of funding, at least. Mm -hmm. um, I do think, if anything, COVID has shown that if enough money and smart people are put together onto a task amazing th i mean we have messenger rna vaccines in a year i mean that's just crazy that's just yes. unheard of it's literally yeah. like in textbooks in a hundred years from now when they look back they're gonna remember this as that moment in humanity where like wow you know if we actually put our if we work together on something we can do amazing things <laughs> yeah, literally. So I think it has shown that, you know, and that's why I think biotechnology and, and, and genomics is going to be, we're going to find more cures and more money pouring into it uh, in the coming years. And it's going to be very multidisciplinary. The, the other thing that COVID has shown is not just biologists and medicine and medical people and doctors. No, it's machine learning experts that are out yeah. doing the traditional it's, it's like, you know, the data, like these huge open databases now that, that house all this information that that people are using to do research it's it's like a very very collaborative multidisciplinary uh platform that has opened up and people's minds also now what used to they, it's impossible now they think it's possible and so i think for those reasons yeah that that area is definitely going to be an area of interest that and the usual like fintech is you know democratizing people as they get digitized uh particularly developing nations and, you know, AI is going to continue to do what it does, right? And that's that's something we have to closely monitor uh, mm -hmm. as it evolves. Then you have fringe things like space and quantum a yeah. little bit further down the lane that we gotta we got to keep our eyes on as well. Yeah, definitely interesting. And uh, you mentioned not sure if these predictions come true, but I definitely hope they do because I think there's so much potential. And if we really manage to work together and create technology that serves us and not, uh, I don't know, puts us in front of our screens and lets us let not get us away from them and then spend hours in front of social media. I think then we can really benefit from this on, on a global and, and humanitarian level. So let's hope 
that you things come true. What are actually your three best pieces of advice that you share with people or companies that look into leveraging data and also privacy for their success? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's super important to be transparent. So the, this whole like, I'm going to hide it away in small text and do all this stuff is, yeah. is gone, right? Especially now we have Netflix documentaries talking about it. That's yesteryear. And so the more upfront you can be and the more transparent and, and clear that, you know, whatever product or service you're providing is needs certain things for certain reasons. That is something that, you know, enables that trust with the people, which right yeah. now is kind of broken. But that that is a competitive advantage these days is, is that trust. Um, and, and also the, the other thing is, is rather than being so protective of the data. So if you think about software development, it used to be the case where if you have proprietary software, you put it into a vault like yeah. Windows. Yeah code and nobody can touch it and it's yours and you sell it and you make money off and you license it and whatnot. And that got disrupted with open source. And now it's all about open source, more people using it, actually the more secure like signal or, um, you know, bigger market opportunities because large user base, mm -hmm. um, these types of things I think will apply to data as well. It'll, it'll come over and spill into the data world where it's now not anymore like Facebook walled gardens. I mean, you know, it's just my data. Opinion, but more on like, okay, we're going to have open databases. We're going to have open anonymized databases and similar to open um, source software, these open and anonymized uh, databases will yeah. provide new business opportunities and, and new capabilities and insights that you wouldn't be able to. And, and that's the direction I think um, things should go and probably will. Absolutely, absolutely. This is also one thing I'm particularly excited about that the European Union is looking into ways to make uh, data, open data possible in a privacy friendly way and therefore give also these small and medium enterprises and startups the possibility to innovate in a much larger scale and not only have the large corporations have all the data and, and all the innovation. I think this would be. Why should the large, look, we're in a living in a decentralizing uh, moment in human history. Yeah. Um, you know, decentralized finance or it's not just finance. Yeah. <laughs> It's everything, and it's enabled by technology. Absolutely, absolutely. So I do think that technology can help give the power back to people. Well, I think we can continue this conversation for hours to come, but I don't want to keep you from your weekend too long. Let's maybe move to the last section of our, our recording. We usually like to play a this or that game with our guests at the end. So just answer uh, the first thing that comes to your mind. Don't think about it too long. Are you ready for the game? Uh, sure. Perfect, perfect. So first question is rainbows or unicorns? Rainbows. <laughs> Why rainbows? Because you can never you can never find the end of the rainbow. You'll always it'll always you'll always be going and find looking for it. <laughs> so keeping moving and keeping learning. Traditional banks or fintechs? Fintechs. Why fintechs? I'm just not traditional to begin with. <laughs> Valid argument. But yeah. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Global or local? Both. Both. Globe local. <laughs> local. 
My answer would be I'm global. Sure this will make it, but what do you understand? <laughs> I'm a global guy, local but global, and again enabled through technology, so I can be local yeah. but global at the same time. Yeah. yeah, definitely. That's that's a benefit also now with with uh, all this technology that we have the possibility to have conversations with people all around the world, collaborate, and it's it's really impressive to see how the pandemic actually uh, also boosts these capabilities and enables so many more things. Um, Apple or Google? Well, you know I got banned by Apple, right? <laughs> okay, so not a fair. Uh, I think that, yeah, but you know, neither. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, let's leave it like that. Privacy or data-driven innovation? Hmm. Can those two coexist? I think so, and this was actually the answer I wanted to hear. So thank you a lot, Sang. It was really a pleasure talking <laughs> to you, and it was so great to hear all your stories. So enjoy your weekend. Uh, call me okay, at so that he's you. not too upset anymore about all this privacy and climate. Um, no, no, not at all. Happy to be on board and happy to have shared some of my thoughts. And thank you, anybody who's listening, for listening. Yes, absolutely. Thanks to our listeners. Have a great day. I really enjoyed today's episode and hope you did too. Sang provided much food for thought. So Alexandra, can we pull together some takeaways for our listeners? Sure, Jeff, I've got three. First, be transparent on how you use data because transparency is actually a competitive advantage in today's market and consumers expect that the privacy stays protected. Second, join the open data movement because that is going to be the next big thing following the open source software trend. Open data will bring new business opportunities and valuable insights. Third, be on the lookout for more startups and tech with a mission to positively impact society and the planet. Whether it be climate change or social good, we are only at the beginning of innovation and will see a lot of advancements over the next 10 to 20 years. Boom. Thanks, Alexandra. And thank you, Sang. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show, but before you go, I have a quick ask. Can you please take 22 seconds and leave us a review? It would be a big help. Thank you so much and see you next time.